Hello, and welcome to the No Good Poetry Podcast. Each week we talk about the good, the bad, and the ugly of poetry. This is episode 40 with... Joseph Makos and... Joseph Bievenin. This is the good, bad, and the ugly, isn't it? Some ugly shit out there, kids. Let's make the world safer for poetry. This week we're back for another edition of Six Poets You May Not Have Heard Of, but a little bit different this week. The other Joseph is not with us, so we have two special guests this week. We have poet Laura Mattingly and poet and my wife, Rana Zielinski. So welcome. Thanks, Thanks Joseph. Uh, so y'all brought some some poets today that maybe our listeners haven't heard of before, huh? Yes. Yes, we did our homework. <laughs> <laughs> like you told us. To. Just for you. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, does someone want to start for us? Yeah, I'm going to start. I'm going to start with a Hungarian poet, Janusz Polinski. And um, he was born in 1921, and he died in 1981. So I found this book locally at Crescent City Used Bookstore. Is that what it's called? Crescent City Books? Yes, Crescent where, City Books. Where past guest Jeff Monsterman works. Okay. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so I got it because it looked old, and I liked the cover. And then, because, um, yes, I do judge books by their cover. so he um was from a family of intellectuals and he was a literature and law and art history major in hungary and then um he was drafted in 1944 during world war ii and he had to follow the german allies as they retreated and so Hmm. that's meant he spent most of his time in concentration camps and witnessing sort of the ravages of what was left behind. It's a very pleasant experience, I'm sure. So he came home and published his first collection in 1946. So he didn't publish anything before? It was all after that experience? He had published some individual poems before, but it was right before he left for the war. Okay. And I don't even have copies of those. I couldn't find anything like that. The book that I found, Crater, is was published very near the end of his life. It was published in 76, and it's taken from a translation that Ted Hughes did, which was a selected works, And hmm. but the person who translated this, Peter Jay, thought that there needed to be one full book of his work mm-hmm. in English also, so that's why he did this one and also added in a couple of his late, late latest poems, or very, very near death. But he says of Polinsky that he believed poetry was always difficult and serious and that poetry was always on the verge of inadequacy to support the moral weight which he attaches to accuracy in the search for revealed truth. Hmm. Yeah, I know. I know you're going to hate it. I think it's funny, the Hungarian Communist Party in the 50s, when he came back and he started publishing labeled him pessimistic and they didn't like him publishing (laughs) because most of what he was publishing about was what he'd experienced Mm -hmm. on this trek through the concentration camps right 
So he was a Catholic. He was a downer, man. Yeah, I know. Yeah, he's. it's not very uplifting. <laughs> he was, you know, he was a Catholic, and he sort of took on this, like, Christian existentialism via Kierkegaard and anguish of indecision. And a lot of the work is about, like, a personal relationship with God. And through all that pe- pessimism, though, there's still this idea that, like, God is love, right? Well, the Communist Party probably didn't like that very much, either. No, they didn't. No. <laughs> No. So so being in the concentration camps, I think, probably only emphasized the idea of isolation and, estra- and estrangement that he might have already had being an intellectual in this time period that he was coming up in. And then that was furthered by the communist dictatorship post-war, right? So, but he continued to publish and participate. He made it out of Hungary. He traveled in the U.S. and Europe in the 60s and 70s. Um, he attained enough acclaim at the time that his work has been translated into several languages. And like I said, Ted Hughes did his selective works in English with another Hungarian poet, poet Janos Koskitz. And then Peter Emanuel did all of his French translations. So Peter J., the translator of this one, Crater, says in his preface that he does not know Hungarian, but worked with Polinsky, who knew French, and uh, Peter J. also knew French. So they first translated them into French for understanding. Then he got help from Koskitz, who had done the translations with Ted Hughes, to go on and, and put them into English. Hmm. So he says about his translation, I attempted the strictest possible translation, not imitation, not adaptation, if these categories have useful meaning, compatible with my understanding of the style, tone, and subject matters of the poems. That is, I have tried to bring my English closely towards the poet's Hungarian. So that's where we are with that. He is considered one of Hungary's best-known so, All right, yeah, let's hear, let's hear some poems. So a lot of these are really short, so I'm just going to read a couple of the really short ones, Joseph, just to piss you off a little bit. Um, well, you <laughs> might want to read more than a couple if they're short. But well, I'm going to read yeah, a couple yeah. of those, and then yeah. I'll read the namesake, the poem yeah. called Crater. Okay, so this is um, Homage to Isaac Newton. We commit what we do not commit, and we do not commit what we commit. Somewhere there is a terrible silence towards that we gravitate. Very serious. This one is Pascal. The paltriest worm's death is the same as the sunrise. Mm. You like that, Laura? That's some deep shit, man. (laughs) Well, it's deep, right? Yeah. Okay, depression. That's too much? (laughs) No, it's not too much. (laughs) Okay, depression. I look at my mother's photograph on the wall, and even her once-loved glance is so stiff now, stiffer than a pebble, and what is worse, just as indifferent as my look facing her. (laughs) Huh. Jesus. (laughs) That's depression for you. Well, that's interesting (laughs) after the concentration camp poems. Yeah. That's, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Okay. Some of them are not as depressing. Here, Here's one that I thought wasn't horrible. They can all be depressing, Raina. I know, but... I'm okay But remember, that. there's this... He's there's not this, okay, but I'm okay with that. There's this <laughs> God is love aspect that okay. flows through them, too, right? Okay. This is this religious existentialism. Yeah. So. yeah. All right. Letter. You sheltered me for a night, sharing your pillow, the gospel... You're wonderful. 
I don't understand anything. There is just beauty, and there are no sexes. Again and again I mourn, not because of you, for you, for me. Blessed are they that mourn. You sheltered me for a night. You have occupied me forever. Hmm. I thought the use of occupied there... Yeah. Interesting, given all of the concentration camp stuff. Well, yeah. And I wonder if it was there or if the translator put it there. Well, yeah, that... We'll never I mean, know I don't know. But I suspect from what the translator said that he, it's probably a very awkward... He probably just found the meaning in English that sounded close. Because it sounded like he was trying to do the most literal translations possible. Mm-hmm. That's probably all that is. That's probably like an artifact of somewhat clunky translation. All right. (laughs) Aquarium. This one's a little bit longer. My sister in the aquarium withdraws among the weeds. Day and night we look for her. Where she is, aunts, children, grandchild, look for her in the slimy, strange, leaf foliage, tomb graveyard. She squats on the bed. Debris. She shudders. Wakes. Starts. Lights a cigarette. Speaks. Talks to us, to nobody. Like a fish bird, her fins flutter, crumple. She shudders and throbs. Her fish bird eyes aren't casting about for our eyes. They just bore holes. It doesn't matter where, as long as there is a hole in anyone, anything, against us, against me, against her, a hole at all costs. I kind of like that one. I thought you might like that one. I don't know about the ending, but... I mean, I like the imagery. It's interesting. The fish bird. A, yeah. It has imagery. It does. <laughs> I don't know why it goes to the other ones. But, um, yeah, no, I mean, I kind of like it until the end. I mean, I, the end is just kind of trails off. But it's still kind of depressing. She's just boring holes in everything. Her look. Well, and maybe that <laughs> happens sometimes. <laughs> but, you know. Well, I bet it, but no, it is kind of, the imagery is kind of interesting because, yeah, there's the aquarium thing, that's, and there's, you know, there's actually a little description of that, but then to switch to, to crouching on the bed and smoking a cigarette, it is, it's not all one note, right? Like, it switches to a pretty different thing. That's nice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> all right. How about this? Maybe this will be like us, honey. Relationship. <laughs> what a silence when you are here. What a hellish silence. (laughs) Sorry. You sit and I sit. You lose and I lose. The end. That is a terrible poem. Like, what what in the world is someone supposed to get out of that poem? A bad relationship? Yeah, but I mean, it's not even... That's not even... Real. Uh, that's, just, that's just... No, you're not into that. That's not good at all. <laughs> <laughs> Alright. A couple more before we get to the crater. These things happen. I wanted to be a servant. These things happen. To lay the table and to clear it away, like the victims stepping up and the hangmen coming down from the scaffold. Between the slits of the stairs shines the sun, and the same sun as if no one had been dragged up who didn't come back down. I wanted to be silence and scaffold, a world stuck between steps, 
Nobody and nothing, a weekend hope. Okay, yeah. I mean, I can see the Kierkegaard influence a lot, but, well, I don't know, I think it's interesting. Well, one of my poets is going to be philosophy influenced too, but I think it's hard to take philosophy and bring that into poetry without adding something to it. And I feel like, well, some of these work better because I think there's something else there. But I think the ones, some of them are trying to just be straight philosophy. I don't know how well that works. Yes. Yes. Like <laughs> this one. The last little one. Life sentence. The bed shared, the pillow not. <laughs> well, that's not even philosophy. That's trying to be like a, yeah. I like that one kind of though. I think that's very clear. You know exactly what he's saying, right? Yeah. I don't know if it's a poem, though. Well, that's trying to be like almost like a weird aphorism or something. Yes, and I think there's a number of these, right? But I think that has to do with the the religious philosophical yearning and trying to figure things out and like make determinations on where he has been and what he has done, right? Coming to terms with the things that he's seen and wanting yeah. to have some sort of answer for that. Yeah. But not being able to to just use the Catholicism that he was raised in, right? Yeah. I guess. I mean, yeah. It's... <laughs> I know. I know. It's a little hard. Okay. Last one. This is Crater. This is the namesake poem. We have met, we keep on meeting, at the tobacconists, at an auction, you were casting about for something, you move something, I should like to escape, I stay, I light a cigarette, you leave, you get off and you get on, I get on and I get off, a cigarette, you step, I step, we walk on the spot, like a murderer in your walking I wade. Bird chirruping as you reproach me for my birth, that we stand here. Then in the stagnant street section, my muttering begins to tumble, rolling from your giant limbs and from that triumphant and blinding something which is now no longer you. Your rejection touches me, this lewd stone-cut lashing, so that my glance, two pebbles, ever since then merely rolls and rolls in a snow-white crater. My two eyes, two eyes bouncing, my salvation. I have no idea <laughs> what... Like a murderer in your walking, I, I wade. That is a very muddled simile. I have no idea what that means. I'm already like... Like a murderer in your walking is difficult enough, and then I wade. But that might be a translation issue. It might be. <laughs> I do like the two pebbles ever since then merely rolls and rolls in a snow white crater my two eyes two eyes bouncing yeah I mean that's I mean that's kind of nice I like the two pebbles in the snow crater that's a nice image but then I thought he was talking about the people and then it switches to the eyes. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I like the eye part so much. Well, your rejection touches me, this lewd snow-cut lashing, so that my glance, two pebbles. Yeah, but it's still turning it into his, about his 
glance rather than it being the two people, which I think is... I mean, it still implies that, I guess, but I think that's the more interesting part of the image. I don't know. So when was this written? So this book was translated in 1976. Um, These poems were originally published in his final collection uh, in 75. 75, okay. I mean, I think... I don't... I mean, I think that there's just this really stark disturbing alienation mm-hmm. throughout the poems that you just read. I mean, there's alienation from the relationship which is supposed to be, you know, a source of comfort and stability and joy in life. And and I I don't know, just the descriptions throughout the poems it's like it seems like it's deeper than that there's an alienation from the self and i think that a lot of people who experienced world war ii they did not recover and so um you know even after the point where i mean he's no longer writing about the concentration camp experience but he's writing about the really sort of it seems like a disturbing state of his inner self. Yeah, I yeah. Um, and you know, it's like people like Viktor Frankl were able to write their concentration camp account, and then and then sort of provide this nar- this this narrative arc that is satisfying for us um, as readers. Um, he, he is able to kind of give us a light at the yeah. end of the tunnel or um, tell us how he figured out how to get himself out of his depression. But, I mean, I, not everybody was able to do that. And so, I don't know. I mean, yeah, we can laugh about, like, how depressing these poems are. But, I mean, are people just not supposed to write them if that well, is their no. life experience? I mean, but I think what you said about the alienation from the self thing... I mean, I think that does very much come through in the poem, but I think that's the problem. And that, I mean, not that that's that's a real experience. I mean, I think it'd be really interesting to read poems that are about that, that communicate something. But the problem is the the exact problem with being alienated with yourself is you're not even really able to understand what you're going through so it's very difficult to write something in a way that feels meaningful in any sort of sense right because it becomes it feels a lot of that feels to me like he's blocking things off in his head well, as I was going to say I wonder so <laughs> when in the research these later poems these are the later poems right mm-hmm. like you said step away from the actual experiences in the camps and I don't have any of the earlier poems but maybe that's what your listeners will go look for but like the earlier poems might have more sort of concrete ways of looking at that rather than this sort of philosophical alienation that you feel uncomfortable well but I mean I think even but even the ones that aren't except for the one the sister one maybe a little bit there was a little bit of letting people in but I mean even the relationship ones they're very closed off right it very much feels like he's just not really 
he's blocking a lot of things off. It just feels very... Yeah, but like Laura said, maybe that's the reality, is that there was yeah. no recovery. I mean, maybe, but that doesn't make for... And then to go straight right. from <laughs> from following the German allies through the concentration camps to, you know, the Hungarian communist dictatorship yeah. must have been just bleak as hell. I mean, I guess. But, I mean, sure. But from from the standpoint of making writing that's interesting to read, I, I don't think that's a very good direction. And there's plenty of people who had experiences like that who that was not their response to, yeah. to it, you know. But um, I think there are also people who like to read sort of existential crisis, non-specific alienation bursts of feeling like these little poems sort of are. Bursts of non-feeling. No, I don't know. I don't know that there's non-feeling. Well, I think there's definitely there's an so awareness much. of bursts non-feeling. of yeah, well, yeah, a burst of blocking off there's your a feelings. Discomfort. <laughs> yeah, I mean these poems are they're honest. very uncomfortable. Un- fucking comfortable. Yeah. Game. yeah, yeah, yeah. This cover is also uncomfortable. I mean, you can't see it, but yeah. the cover mm-hmm. is like. A window that's open and there's heads, and the, the primary head is separated from its statue block, right? Well, marble busts. Yes. Right? That. Well, there's not busts; they're just heads. Mm-hmm. That's still considered a bust, I think. But yeah, but yeah, one of them's separated from its base. Yeah. I don't know. That seems like that's almost like it looks like like a Shiriko painting or something. Look at him. He's alone in the wilderness. <laughs> no. Old and sad. They're, 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 they're playing up something. They certainly are. <laughs> but yeah. That's Polinsky. To start off on a real high note. <laughs> All right, well. Nowhere to go <laughs> from here. Well, Take maybe. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't going to do this one first, but maybe I should do the poet that has a little philosophical bent uh, that I was going to do, which is Will Alexander. Um, And he's a really interesting poet. He's not, I don't think, very well known. Uh, He lives in L.A. He's lived in L.A. pretty much his entire life. And, you know, he got his MFA and did all that stuff. But... I think it took a while for him to really get that much published, and he mostly just kind of works small jobs and things here and there. So, I mean, which which I think that's admirable, right, to keep writing when that's not really, you know, you're not, not only not making a living, but I think not particularly getting that much recognition from it. But he's got a very big thing with, he's got a very, very big thing about philosophy. So... The first book that I managed to find from him was was some shorter poems. And most of his books are these kind of strange cross-genre sort of things that are really... A lot of it's dealing with philosophy. Some of it's dealing with fiction as well and kind of playing those boundaries there. And he's also like very much into surrealism as well. But from the philosophy standpoint, you know, two of these books, one of them is just... I mean, this could just be a philosophy book, essentially. The whole introduction is just entirely about this whole idea he sort of has. 
he's kind of like merged philosophy with surrealism. It's kind of like a similar idea to like the Andre Breton Supreme Point idea, where like everything, all the contradictions that exist, all the polarities of things, kind of like pulled into one point, and that's what poetry is supposed to be doing in mm-hmm. some way. Like all those opposite things. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you can do that. So I, I would say he's definitely sort of difficult poetry. Uh, for that reason, because he's trying to do this very, this very kind of odd process of of pulling all the opposites of everything <laughs> into one place. But maybe since we're talking about the philosophy, I'll read a little tiny bit from this this first. This is from this book across the vapor gulf, which is more like a well. This is from New Directions, but they do these poetry pamphlet things, and this is a New Directions poetry pamphlet. But this is, this entire book is based around this philosopher, uh, Ciaran, I'm probably saying the name wrong, who's a French philosopher and is known for being uh, very depressing. And he, but he writes in a very personal style as opposed to like philosophy that's very logical. It's all like written personally. But he has this book of, of like there are these little short kind of prosy little pieces that are almost like little aphorisms but they're written in a personal style and a lot of them are like promoting the virtues of suicide because Ciaran believed that that's like what gave him hope in life was the fact that he could always kill himself um, so, no matter how bad things were you could end it yeah so, but it, that's not a terrible philosophy. A, a point of agency. Yeah, yes. yeah. You yeah. have the choice. Yeah, you always have a final, an ultimate, a penultimate, an ultimate choice. Yeah, which is well, kind of actually kind of true. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, a lot of people can't really get down with that too much. So no, I think you still want to talk about suicide as being some sort it's of sin or social favor, <laughs> socially unacceptable. But, I don't know, uh, but apparently what appealed to Will Alexander about this philosopher is he just liked the personal aspect of it. So, I think these are kind of like, sort of imitations of those, but with a surrealist bent to them, and they're kind of interesting. But I also think they're interesting because it also says a little bit about his kind of poetics. Especially this part, and I and that's good. Okay. Negation? A blank heron? A stark incarnadine spider? Perhaps all of the above being nothing more than rural epithets when compared to the undulating beam that we know invigorates the cosmos. I am a spirit who exposes his mandibles in order to appear and disappear, this being a kinetics that spontaneously arranges ghostly collapse to appear as simultaneous visibility the latter being an apparition that allows the mind to ruminate upon its circuitous connecting traces. I work, always knowing one must resist carking exhaustion, always resisting its a priori inclination, as did Alazen, and in later times Rimbaud. One gains from this resistance impalpable ends of stamina so as to enact prolific creativity rife with palpable transmutation. I think of Desnos, rife with oneric eruption, verbally fishing for Oquasa, this being the inner work of extending lightning bolts from stark extremities of sleep. 
What follows are vocables that mimic proto-fires that condense in the shape of burgeoning oral seed. What then emerges are slivers from uncanny aural scarps that magnify and extend into strangeness. Well, I can tell why you like it. <laughs> the images are pretty wild. Yeah. All the animals. Oh, and there's a lot of animals. Mandibles. Mm-hmm. Mandibles. <laughs> that stuck out to me, too. Mm-hmm. They expose my mandibles. <laughs> but I think that maybe... I, I like that part, too, because it kind of, I think, gives some sense of what he's going for poetics-wise. Although, I mean, that whole book is just prose poetry, essentially. Um, you know, he's kind of got a, he's, he's surrealist. His two biggest influences are, um, Cesar, Amé Cesar and Octavio Paz. And it kind of feels like that to me to some extent, but it's interesting, I guess, you know, Cesar, especially, I think his, his dad was stationed in the Caribbean at some point when he was serving in World War II. And I guess told him a lot of things about the Caribbean was especially impressed at that time that uh, black people could have positions of power. And, and uh, I mean, Will Alexander is black. And so he kind of got these stories from his dad about that. And Cesar especially, I think that was something where, where he grasped onto that. And it really just led him to this love of the surrealists, um, but especially that kind of thing. And you can kind of feel that coming through there. So, and the first work that he wrote that really got much attention was this book called Asia and Haiti, Two Long Poems, which I unfortunately don't have, but I ordered. But So I'll get it later. <laughs> but it's it's basically, I'm, I'm interested to read it. It's two, two long poems that's about all the political and cultural in history things of Asia and of Haiti, which is kind of interesting. And I don't I don't know why he picked those two <laughs> places necessarily. But man, I was looking at it. an undertaking. Yeah. Like. But man, I was looking at it on Amazon, and this was just, there was only one review on Amazon of this book. Hmm. But it's a pretty good review. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is from John Graham was the guy who reviewed this. Asia and Haiti... John Graham is? I don't know. I think that's a poet. Could be. He's the only... It's the only person who reviewed it on on Amazon. Okay. Asia and Haiti is one of those epic poetic events like Amay Cesar's Return to Native Land or Frank Stanford's The Battlefield Where the Moon Says I Love You. Wow. That redefine the poetic landscape to such an extent that one can no longer imagine the world without them. Asia and Haiti is a remarkable exploration of history and spirit from an oblique angle that allows the shadows cast by his subject matter to be revealed in all their torturous complexity. The gnomic density of Will Alexander's splendid Maldorian phrases is the perfect antidote to the culture of the soundbite. John Graham's got some words. Yeah, well, I mean, some of that stuff's... I mean, to say, you know... Gnomic density is about the perfect thing I can imagine to say for for Will Alexander's work here. I mean, it's definitely, yeah, it is. It, it does have this strange kind of contrast. It's very dense and very lush with all these different images, but at the same time, it 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 does have this kind of 
concise sort of philosophic bent to it at the same time, which is interesting. Like it's kind of doing both of those stuff, both of those things at once. So just so you know, there is a John Graham author page. It's called Life on the Edge, and he just recently spoke at the Naval Academy. But War Leadership in a Moral Life. He has a whole bunch of books and memoirs. I mean, maybe that's the same person. I feel like that's probably a fairly common name, huh? Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. It could be. It could be. Possibly. I want it to be. Hmm. (laughs) So, I don't know. Um, his, his, His... I really like his poetry a lot, and it's kind of like a great sort of modern surrealism. And I really... I mean... I like his kind of outlook on things, too. But, I mean, maybe it's just because it's similar to me. I don't know. But I'm going to read some more poems. But I did want to read... I found this great, like, little interview from Entropy mm-hmm. uh, with him. But I just wanted to read two parts of it. Because they, you know, I think they kind of asked all the poets the same question. But the first, they said, why poetry? And this was Alexander's answer here. Poetry is aboriginal utterance. It generates the palpable via the impalpable. It concretizes the telepathic. It opens in us various scales of mystery. So the poet, by his or her nature, evinces living adventure. One can never predict the living glass of speech or how it will spontaneously form or predict the reverberation of its impact. By its very nature, it is cerserant, provocative, The systemics of politics or religion fall by the wayside, and what makes it so foreboding is that it continues to provoke and generates beyond surcease. Because it needs no intermediary, the quotidian is naturally understood to be of ancillary standing, thereby ceasing to corrode one's seminal oral ignition. Poetry, for me, is not unlike dark energy. It galvanizes, yet eludes detection. There are some poets... I maintain as being part of the populace of the uncontrollable. They have risen above the need for repartee with established means. In one of my recent publications, Spectral Hieroglyphics, I focus on a special triumvirate, Aimé César, Antonin Artaud, and Roger Gilbert Lecomte. They represent the other in such an extreme and effective manner, and it calls up the hidden and embrangles the more superficial planes with primordial invasion. In summary, to paraphrase the gist of Paz, language needs spin as subversive enigma. Mm. That's a lot. It is a lot. (laughs) That's so good. (laughs) Subversive enigma. You know, and I know that's like something people don't necessarily like but i mean I, I i agree with that whole idea like politics and history fall by the wayside to some extent i mean it's informing it but i mean to me you know well, poetry is larger it rises than above that. and beyond that yes well good poetry does yeah great poetry does you can have good poetry and great poetry that is historically and or socially informed Informed, but it has to it has to be beyond that too, right? Yeah, but that's the same with fiction, also. 
I guess, yeah. No, I mean, I think that's true. The literature is that we I mean, I think that's true with visual again, art. I again think and that's again, true go with, beyond yeah. the moment that they're in, right? <laughs> no, Laura, you don't agree? <laughs> she doesn't want to say. <laughs> I don't know. Well, and it's funny. And then my other poet I'm going to do later has similar ideas. But uh, I don't know. I guess I just don't feel like... I don't know. I feel like I... I I'm going to say something that's not what you're saying. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. I don't know. Um, I guess I just feel like there's a lot of different reasons to write and also manifestations of writing and I feel like they all have their purpose and I I don't know I guess I just hesitate to make like sweeping generalizations about what makes something great literature because I feel like some pieces of writing are very situational and their impact um relies on their context and then once that context is over um their meaning doesn't always carry forward with them and does that mean that what that piece of writing did in the moment was not significant i mean i just i don't know i guess i just feel too limited in my humanness to to make great determinations about um whether or not a piece of writing needs to be lasting its importance and its meaning to, you know, to have, you know, I guess... Some greater, larger, yeah. whatever. Well, yeah. yeah, I think the reason for writing and the writing being lasting are two different things, though, huh? I mean, I feel like... I feel like the, the tension in this discussion <laughs> is probably pretty similar to the tension in the last discussion about about your Hungarian poet and whether or not his writing is doing anything. Mm-hmm. It was doing something for him. Mm-hmm. That's why he wrote it. And I think that um, within a certain context, his writing was very meaningful. Though for us in America in 2018... Maybe it doesn't resonate with us as much as it would, you know, for for his readers at the time. And does that mean that it was not? Well, I don't know. I don't know if it means that it was not important. But I mean, there's certainly writing that's far more removed from us than that, and that still speaks to us. Although you for know? the Hungarians, his writing was very resonant and continues to be. He's one of the foremost Hungarian poets. Like that's. One of the yeah. people they go to and hold up as Hungarian poetry. Great, amazing. Yeah, but maybe that's because for them, that that context is still there. But I don't know. I mean, but should... I think that writing should be able to exist without context. You should be able to do both. That's fine if it has a greater meaning for people who have that context. But if it doesn't also have meaning for people who don't have that context... I don't know that that's really effective writing at that point. I, I mean, and I think, and I think, and I mean, you know, I, I definitely kind of like that surrealist idea in Alexander. That it's kind of what he's coming off of. You know, I mean, I think from the surrealist standpoint, the idea is if you're doing a good job writing, you're tapping into something 
that is beyond contact, you're tapping into the subconscious of all humanity. You're tapping into things that are that are present for everyone, and you don't need to have a context for that. Now, you might also have other things in that work that do require context, but if you're not also tapping into that, then you're not really hitting the heart of what poetry is. But who gets to decide what poetry is? Well, but, but, but if you have that if you have that option, you can write something that anyone can pick up and it moves them, or you can write something that only, the only way it can move you is if you're in a similar situation and you're aware of it, or if you're in a context where it makes sense to you, what is stronger? Well, that, but, the, but who thinks about that when they're writing a poem? I'm not saying you think about that. I think what that is is your your if you're learning the language of poetry, what poetry is, you're automatically doing that to some extent. Well, all right. Well, we'll continue the MFA <laughs> argument about what poetry is. But why don't you read? Some all right, but yeah, let's read some of Will Alexander's poems. <laughs> <laughs> Spend time in workshop. Hmm. So So these are a couple shorter poems. Some of the best poems in this book are longer, but they're way too long. Did you get that book at City Lights? Oh, this, yeah, I did get this at City Lights. And this is, City Lights has been doing this Spotlight series, uh, and it's pretty cool. There's a lot of good poets in it. Maybe some other ones will be read in future episodes. It's a cute book. It yeah, is. and they're very nice like looking. the size and the design. The size, and they also have pocket poems. When we were there this summer, nice. we spent all our money at City Lights in yeah. San Francisco. Yeah, they have, they have a lot of, <laughs> they're doing, they're doing some good new stuff too, and this is, uh, yeah, and in this whole series, they all are this size, and they're just different art, but they're all a similar sort of design where it has the like. Half and half. Yeah, like one third, two thirds mm-hmm. kind of thing. All right, this is The Ghost Survivor. Body by Drosera, by pure Calliope as referent, as invaded mausoleum, the body then existing as standing cinder under threat, condensed, brought back to the soil as a sub-abandoned heresy, being a blue incarnivorous thought arrangement, under an orange-white dust, next to a blank invertigree spinning house, and this spinning house brazen with tarantulas and probing with its sun posts imploding with its macaws and adders as regressive suborders, the body in this haze, an apparitional ballast, a half-form quaking, flowing through faceless compost arcana, calling out from jeopardous blindings, from disrupted falcons and armies like salt without form, like general anthracite gone missing. And then I thought I'd read... This book kind of is all over the place. There's a lot of shorter ones kind of like that. And then there's some longer ones that are also line break ones. And then he's got these kind of prose poem ones at the end. Um, And this is very different. This is on anti-biography. For me, biography is a lantern burning in the midst of parenthetical opaqueness. In a sense, it is a ruse a phantasmic meandering, brighter or dimmer, according to the eclectic happenstance of terror. Me, I've been sired an anomaly, in an imagery of brewing grenadine riddles, 
a parallel poesis spawned from curious seismographic molten. I say curious because the original stalking arc has disappeared into the wilderness of an a priori blizzard, which gives birth to a level like a portal of fire conjoined with the lightning field of mystery. I call in the poetic guardian dove, the hieratic alien wing. It is the non-local field, the non-particle acid, flowing into my magnetive iodine rays, into the vicious fires of my tarantella marshes. So I dance with vibration, with the solar arc spinning backward around the miraculous force of a double green horizon. Simultaneously, I escape the territorial while remaining within the burning loops of my own momentary seizures, guarded by ferns, legs plowing land, the face and the mind guided by stars. So I am a martyr of drills, of spates, of specific lingual flooding, casting at times a mist or a mirage like a caravan of yaks, transporting tungsten and water. Conversely, to give a graph of dates, to single out a bevy of personal social lesions would invert me, would turn me around a diurnal bundle of glass, staggered with a less than fiery temperature, partially mulling my sensitivity to falling phonemic peppers, to the inclination towards victory which burns in the dawn above heaven. For me, this is the green locale, the plurama of eternal solar essence, glinting full of fabulous maelstrom diamonds, an empowered hegira of drift, of claustrophobic rainbow spectrums which empty themselves and return to themselves, like having an image go out and return to itself, so that its power transmutes by the very energy of its looping, and I think of myself, the poet sending signals into mystery and having them return to me with oneric wings and spirals, so much so that I forget my prosaic locale with its stultifying anchors, with its familial dotage and image reports, with its dates inscribed in trapezoidal feces. I am only concerned with simultaneity and height, with rays of monomial kindling guiding the neocortex through ravens into the ecstasy of x-rays and blackness. So, I mean, that's interesting, talking about alienation with Polinsky, but there's an alienation from other humanness in that poem also. It's just full of a lot more words. But that was the well, poem. Well, it's very dramatic. It's also very dramatic, yes. Uh, the imagery was really surreal I don't think, yeah. and vivid. I mean, stylistically, it's completely different. I think separating from people, certainly, but not alienation from self. Those oh, are no, different things. No, it's elevation of self as poet. Yeah, I mean the the, the magic, not, but not from magical. self. We were saying, we were saying. No, I know. The, yeah, but there's yeah. Still, even with the with the poem about the body. So that poem he wrote third person, right? So there's nothing even about his own body in that one. And the only thing that's really about himself in this one, I don't know, is about his image as a poet. Well, but the the that poem is specifically called on antibiography, so that kind yeah. of makes sense. I mean, I don't know that I would say that that's a theme that runs through. But that one is on antibiography. That's kind of the idea. Um, yeah. No, it's certainly not personal. 
Although I know, I think maybe the philosophical one that I was reading is is a more bit personal, personal, which yeah. is interesting. Yeah. That um, the Phil- the prose philosophical definitely. poem felt way more personal. Yes. Yeah. 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 I don't think those are particularly. I know why you like them. I know what you like, but. <laughs> and there's lots of good words. Words after words. Well, and, and this was sound. Image. And, and sound, sound. yes. Yeah, so that's that's sound. a lot of what I like about the sound is really interesting. But there's also so much of that that I don't, I, I can't keep up with the images. Maybe I'm a slow reader. Well, yeah, I mean, it's easier reading than listening to it, I think. But yeah, it's very dense on mm-hmm. purpose. Mm-hmm. But I don't think you're supposed to necessarily get all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't. I don't get the sense that there's like a super logical Thread narrative yeah. that we're supposed to depict. No, I mean there's a thread, but yeah, it's not logical thread. Yeah. No, that's one of the best things is the sound. It's double so good. Double green horizon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Fuck is a double green horizon? <laughs> Sounds great. Nuclear uh, war? <laughs> I, well, to me, I see like the image of, you know how sometimes when you have the sky and it's all the same color, but it's straight and like you have the different, mm-hmm. so it, like one part's a darker green, one part's a lighter green. Mm-hmm. I see so a nuclear cloud yeah. like mm-hmm. you see in pictures mm-hmm. yeah. where it's that that sort of yellow green. Yeah. <laughs> it's chaotic. It's chaotic. The images are chaotic. Yeah, I don't know if I would say that it's chaotic. I mean, I, I've cert- I think there's a lot of poetry that has much more chaotic imagery than that. It's packed very densely, for sure. I mean, to me, there is a very, like, movement from one thing to the next that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if I would say it's chaotic, but yeah, it's certainly very densely packed. I mean, there's well, and I probably, think definitely something you need to be able to look at and read. Yeah, so I think it's, it's yeah hard to hear it and process at the same time, right? But I don't know. Yeah, that's Will Alexander. That's cool. All right, Laura, you want to read something now? Okay, so I have a book by Jess Stoner. Um, called I Have Blinded Myself Writing This. And this book was a gift. um, And I had never read anything by this author before, and I fell in love with it. So Um, this is an interesting-looking book. Do you want to kind of describe what it is? Yes. So the book is designed to look like um, one of those drugstore composition composition journals. It's like the size of it, too, huh? Yeah, essentially. It's close to the size. It's a a little larger. Mm -hmm. There are more pages in it. But, um, yeah, it has, like, the black and white speckled pattern on the front. And then um, it's made to look as though it's been worn. So there are creases. But it... It's like a picture of creases. (laughs) (laughs) The book doesn't actually have creases. Um, And so this is a really interesting blend between fiction and poetry. And I did some reading about it online, and some critics have referred to it as a novel. 
and it, it does have aspects of a novel. Um, there are characters that are well established and they're consistent through the entire book. There is a narrative arc. There are, you know, there's like there, these dynamics, these ongoing dynamics between the characters. There are themes. So in that way, it is like a novel, but um, to see the stuff on the page, it looks, it appears like prose poetry, or like a blend of poetry and fiction. So some of the pages, the writing is in a solid block made of traditional sentences. Mm -hmm. and. On other pages, there's only one sentence or one line. The lines are sometimes written vertically instead of horizontally. Some of the uh, some of the pages have most of the words on the page are um, have lines through them. They're struck out, and only some of the words are visible. So, oh yeah, and there are pictures included, and um, and and some pages are structured like more traditional shorter poems breaks, yeah. with shorter lines oh. yeah so i i did a little bit of research on this author because i didn't know anything about her other than this book and she writes nonfiction as well she wrote hmm. a lengthy essay that might turn into a book on the injustices of working as a u.s postal worker hmm. um she used to live in Austin. Now she lives in Colorado and teaches poetry to children. So, yeah, and she, it seems like she's worked in universities, but also has had a lot of blue-collar life experience that I think, I think comes out to some degree in this poetry novel, which I like a lot. How old is she now? Do you know? Um, I I don't know. I was not able to find a cohesive biography. I just found some sort of online interviews with her mm-hmm. about the nonfiction journalism she did about yeah. her, oh, okay. her postal yeah. work experience. I don't think that she has a prolific career. Who, pub- who published what? this book, just out of curiosity? Um, I'm going to tell you that. Probably on the, on the spine, maybe. Short Flight, Long Drive Books. Huh, I've never heard of that. I've never heard of that. just thought it might give us some clue, but maybe not. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just did kind of a preliminary search online. Yeah, so yeah. There, there might be more that I missed, more information about her. But, um... So, so this is fiction, though. This is not this is not a nonfiction novel. Um, but anyway, so I'll read some things. So, I'll, okay, wait. Before I read some sections, I wanted to talk a little bit about the storyline, which I th- thought was really fascinating. So, the main character, the narrator of this, is a woman who has a rare condition that she inherited from her mother. The first page is, we have suffered, my mother and I, from an affliction. Our blood needs our brains. Memories compelled by cuts 
seal wounds. If the past you keep with you in the present disappeared with a bruise, then you would understand. So the narrator has this condition that is a physical condition, but also a mental condition. If she bumps herself or receives any kind of cut or abrasion, her body heals itself using her memories. So the memory, so for her body to heal itself physically, the memories are taken out of her brain and she no longer has access to them anymore. And that's a fictional condition. It is a totally okay. fictional condition. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's interesting because so, something about this voice is so sincere mm-hmm. that part of me wanted to believe that there were that this was mostly true. But you can think of, I mean, there's something about the idea of the older we get and the more sort of injured our bodies become and then the harder it is to heal and you wonder if that has to do with sort of dwindling mental capacity. Like there's only so much you can put into, Mm -hmm. right? Well, and I think it also could be a philosophical commentary about what healing entails, Mm -hmm. that healing entails letting go of Mm. things. Yeah, Yeah, sure. Letting go of the consciousness of things. I know, but it reminds me of, like, healing from sexual trauma and rape. Yeah. Right? Yes. Yeah. So, so, okay, so there's that aspect of the story. Then also um, the novel takes place over the span of a marriage. So we're we're hearing the story of a marriage that eventually goes awry, terribly awry. And the couple's relationship to her condition is what the story is about. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, they both have this sort of romantic way of relating to each other about her condition. Like, he wants to take care of her. He wants to constantly um, remind her to keep herself safe Mm -hmm. and to be careful. And he always um, calls her to remind her who he is and different parts of their past together. Because he just wants to... He wants to keep their relationship intact in her memory. That's really important to him at first. And then as the story goes on, he begins to... Don't tell too much, I want to read it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) all right. Well, uh, yeah, why don't you read us some selections from it? Okay, so there's this other character, too, which is not alive in the narrative. Um, It's her brother, Ben, who died before the story takes place. The last time Teddy and I drove past the apartment building where Ben and I grew up, it wasn't there. What it's like to remember a place that doesn't exist. What it's like to forget a place that never existed, only to be surprised that it still doesn't exist. Where is the stair that creaks in the house that's no longer there? In my hand is the blueprint of a life that is no longer mine. The couch on our enclosed porch. I can still smell the upholstery of a thing that was taken to the dump a decade ago. 
the tight writhing of our senses and our memory. In my mind, I'm sure I can, and that I've never needed to be reminded. Um, and each page exists more or less as its own section, which I really like. I mean, each page is definitely related to each other because there, there are a lot of um, aspects of continuity. But they're the not text. numbered. They are also not numbered. Yeah, so they're not necessarily needing to be read chronologically. And I didn't read it all chronologically, but retrospectively, after I finished it, I realized that there absolutely is to, yeah. an intentional chronology. But I feel like the lack of the page numbers um, is supposed to just lend, you know, inform, lend to the um, the feeling of disorientation that that grows in intensity for the narrator throughout the text. Then she forgets about their their friend. Not every memory is completely erased. I did remember Gary because he married Jen 11 years ago. He just looked so much older. That's the thing that makes this not so bad. Sometimes makes me not that different from you. If I get a paper cut, I might forget that time that Teddy and I went on that four-hour drive to get a jar of pickles across the state line, but I don't forget Teddy. Because our memories aren't sequestered in one location, they're spread across like interstates, and those unnamed roads in Eastern Europe when Teddy and I were there, a place where people only know to tell you to take your third right, and if you're not paying attention, you'll end up at a nunnery on accident where the frocked make grain alcohol. But you can usually find your way back. Gary was surprised I'd forgotten him, but he said he understood. He has Jen. Teddy can't be this way. Because I'm what he has. And I think he's worried mostly because he doesn't want me to forget that not everything has been a brother out a window or a mother who brought home a real Christmas tree. Hmm. And it's... the The book designed like a composition notebook also is suggestive that this is it's written like a journal yeah, yeah. so she is writing notes to herself so that she will remember her, and her then own. as she gets pregnant she starts communicating with her daughter in the future because she's concerned that she won't remember enough to tell her daughter so so the book also is almost like a time capsule for herself and also for her daughter when she grows up. Um, right now, you're the only other one who knows. Rip this page so I won't. <laughs> yeah, and she has a very artistic... I mean, she, she, as a narrator, as her character seems like a very working class person. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's not much evidence of higher education, but she, um, her personality 
is uh, depicted as a very she she has a very artistic yeah dynamic personality and she um, ends up struggling a lot with um, sort of impulses to self destruct because of a frustration of having to be so careful with herself so there's this impulse to put down the memories um, to preserve them but then there's also this impulse to just destroy them as mm -hmm. she goes along mm -hmm. so that's that's there too anyway so that's just donor's book you have to leave that here can i read it well <laughs> <laughs> it's chris's turn to read it but yes, this you book can. Is in high demand. He, yeah. I could do it in a day. Yeah, no, I'm I think that's more good. days. I could do it. And get I think it back that's to good. You on Friday. Yeah, I think that's good. <laughs> that's really cool. All right. Well, here's another woman poet who deals with female-specific issues in a lot of ways. Um, Asse Berg, Swedish poet, born in 1967. She's still alive, pretty prolific. She was one of the founding members of the Stockholm Surrealist Group in 1986. And um, her translator into English is always Johannes Gorensen. don't know mm. if I'm saying that right. But he's also a poet. He's a he emigrated to the U.S. when he was thirteen, and he has a whole bunch of books of poetry uh, on top of his translations um, through co-edits, co-edits, action books, and he publishes an online journal called Action Yes. So here's what somebody says about her poetry, Asa Beckman. Asa Berg's poetry is discomforting because it lacks boundaries. When I read her, I notice how my consciousness tries to separate divide up and make sense of her almost hallucinatory images, but they always glide back together. I get nauseous and almost seasick from her texts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, isn't that the desired response? <laughs> I know, but I mean, let's puke all over it. <laughs> yeah. So then, so I found this interview with her um, about her latest work, Hackers, which is not the book I have. The book I have is called Transfer Fat. And we got this in San Francisco, Joseph, but not at City Lights. We found it at that little bookstore in Mendocino. And it's Ugly Duckling Press, who always makes nice books, and it's a very, it's yes. a very pretty book. It's gorgeous, and it's a nice size, too. It's even smaller than the City Lights book. And it has a DNA sequence on it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but so this has nothing to do with this book, but I just thought it was interesting to get an idea about what she's thinking about. So this latest book that she published, Hackers... Or apparently, throughout her work, there's talk about horses. I don't know why I'm reading this, but I liked it. Okay, so this is about a different book. When I wrote With Deer, it was merely an intellectual image, her view on horses. But later on, I started riding and had my own horses, and I realized that the practice of communicating with a horse is poetry without words. Mm. You have to grow into the horse's body to be able to ride. It's like dancing or sex. But the horse is also a symbol of the oppressed. It's oppressed in itself. The humans control the horses completely. We control their reproduction, their food, their space. And the horse is always protesting in some ways, destroying the fence, running away, sometimes refusing to do what you ask them to do. But it's a mild protest. If they want it, they could easily kill you. It's a communicative protest, not an aggressive one. That fascinates me. Then on another level, the horse is a symbol of female oppression. 
When men got cars, they suddenly got tired of horses and let women take over the use of horses. At least in Sweden, it's probably different in the United States. You have cowboys and prestigious macho ranches. We had war horses, <laughs> the German discipline. And nowadays, the majority of activities regarding horses are performed by women. The use of horses became softer since they are unpredictable. Men prefer machines. It was a loss of status, as if every male activity dumped on women. When men got bored of the romantic disease melancholy some hundred years ago, it became a merely female diagnosis instead, now under the not-very-sexy term depression. But above all, the horse is a mystery. It's a way of reading your thoughts through the slightest movement of your eyes, your body. The horse is a precision instrument, and of course, the Trojan horse was a beautiful invention. So there's that. Um, they go on to ask her more things. Are you... Your relationship with womanhood and disappearance in some very specific words. Are you feminizing it? What's being boiled away? She says, among other things, the nuclear family is being boiled away. Capitalism and patriarchy grows on it. The norm of behavior attached to being a woman. When Glenn Close is boiling the rabbit in fatal attraction, she is also boiling the expectations of being a woman, the expectations of motherhood, being a good wife, and so on. The nuclear family is pure evil. There's some idea of where she's coming from. And then the last thing is this interviewer asks her about what her relationship with Johannes Gorenson is because he's the only person who translates her work into English. Uh -huh. And she says, Johannes does what he wants with my poetry. I totally trust him. We have also become friends, and we spent a lot of crazy days together. Traveling with him, I learned a lot about the USA, about people and traffic and your sometimes a bit strange behavior. Maybe this knowledge is not always totally accurate. <laughs> but I think that says something about the translations, right? Yeah. Like, she's like, I don't know. Do whatever you want. Yeah. It sounds like. Well, it's probably better in some ways, but... Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's a very different thing than, like, the Polinsky book, where he's like, I very much tried to make it exactly... Well, that guy sounded like a terrible translator, but... <laughs> okay. <laughs> a different translator, Joseph. No bad. Just all around bad. So, bad poetry. Yeah, bad, bad poetry. poetry. Um, that's, not that's just a bad method of translation, what that other guy was saying. But. All right, my love. So, this is a prose poem from 3AM Magazine. Again, still not from the book that I'm going to get to, but I liked it, so I just wanted to read it. Um, in the guinea pig cave. There lay the guinea pigs. There lay the guinea pigs, and they waited with blood around their mouths like my sister. There lay the guinea pigs, and they smelled bad in the cave. There lay my sister, and she swelled and ached and throbbed. There lay the guinea pigs, and they ached all over, and their legs stuck straight up like beetles, and they looked depraved and were blue under their eyes as from months of debauchery. My sister puked calmly and indifferently. It ran slowly out of her slack mouth without her moving a single nerve. And the cave was warm as teats and full of autumn leaves, and beneath the soil lay the arm of a mannequin. There lay the guinea pigs and ached and were made of dough. There lay the guinea pigs beside the knives that would slice them up like loaves. And my sister with lips of blueberries, soil, and mush. In the distance the siren bleated inhumanely. That is where the guinea pigs lay and waited with blood around their mouths and contorted bodies. They waited. And I was tired in my whole stomach from meat dough and guinea pig loaf, and I knew that they would revenge on me. 
So that's from that latest book with fear. That's wild. Hmm. It's a lot. Mm-hmm. So what do you make of all that? Eating guinea pigs? Why, why did you choose the poem? Why did I choose this film? I mean, it's remarkable. I really like it. But anyway, what appeals to it? Well, I think, I think the overall metaphor of whatever's going on with the sister and the guinea pig, something's eating the sister apart, right? Mm-hmm. And we don't know what that is. Um, and I think probably being American, the idea of eating guinea pigs feels very foreign and weird anyway. This might feel different if you were in a place where people eat guinea pigs, which is a common occurrence many other places, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I think what's interesting in it, though, is that that shifts through the poem, right? Because in the beginning, it's a metaphor, but then the sister's actually laying there in the cave. And she's eating guinea pigs. Yeah, and then you have the eating thing, which it seems like the... I mean, that, to me, is what's interesting. The the scene kind of shifts several times through the course of the poem, which is interesting. And then, and I knew that they would revenge on me, which I guess is the guinea pigs, but yeah. Hmm. So, the Transfer Fat book also is filled with animal images, and this one is mostly rabbits and whales. That's an interesting title, Transfer Fat. It is. Um, and the and it's set up kind of strange. It has these sections that have names, and then sometimes the section is a bunch of unnamed poems throughout, and sometimes the poems also have names, or then there's a series of poems that aren't named. So I'm still not sure if they go by a section completely. Mm-hmm. And this book is particularly nice because it does have the Swedish and then oh, the that's nice. Yeah. So the first section is called, I don't even know, how do you even say that? Is that strain? I would say strama, but I don't know. Is I that I don't English know. word? No, I don't think so. Look it up. I don't think that's English. Alright, so strain strama, unborn fat. I am still dead, I am flowing. Will follow hair through the newborn's wild calm. Go the hair's softly rumbling spear shape. And each of these has some sort of a that towards the rest of the thing. And visually, so the poems don't necessarily just go down the page like right there. So, so there's a small stanza and a lot of space. And then a stanza at the very bottom. That's twice as long as the first one. But they're not all the same. And And then some of them have names. It's, yeah. But this, I'm going to read this first section. Okay, so. Cut the keel and hair brood pool. Cut fin and fat, fishtail born. Keep fat, let fat wait. Keep time, let time go. Let time rock calmly in hair. Let fat build core in hair. In the hair cosmos, time is shell. Let time rock calmly in hair. Let carry and hold the calm hair. Let skull rock in the skeleton bowl. 
In the shell runs the nerves thin ghost. In the shell the nerves thin ghost clears time for fat. It will take many thousand years to raise fat. Smelt. Carry my smelt across hard lakes. Carry my way of pouring runny body. Your shells meets darkness. Hard. A core meltdown should be hardened, but let them busy. We have your meat which flows between the fingers which flow. Core. Your filling fatness. You voter choose this licking. Smelting star, move therefore close to calmly pounding hair your growing water fur. And that's the end of that first section. Hmm. Um, I think I, I need to read that. To, I, it was hard for me to, to it, digest as I was listening to. But there's also something which is weird that I, I mean, I don't understand necessarily if that's a translation choice or... There are a lot of things in there that were like purposeful subject verb inversion and like I wonder if that's in the original or if that's some translation choice. There's also things that were just like like many thousand instead of many thousands. Yeah. That are that are un unidiomatic English wise. It's it's a little odd. I wonder what's um happening with that. It the idea mm-hmm. of the voter or you voter gets introduced in the first thing and it actually runs throughout the whole book and I still have I I don't know what that means. What is the voter or you voter? Is it I mean you would Like voter? Yeah, like V O T E R. Like a person who votes? Yeah, I, mean, I guess. Maybe that's a way of saying citizen. Or like a, a direct translation of however they say person or citizen person or, or countrymen. I think it's an interesting choice. Yeah. It's so funny. I mean, I don't know. This is the second translated, and I'm going to do a translated one too. But it's funny. I mean, when I think of some poets that I encountered them when they only had one translator. Mm-hmm. And then later on, there more people translated their work. Sometimes it doesn't make a difference, right? Sometimes it's like, okay, that they just came through in all of those different translations, mm-hmm. maybe in slightly different ways, but it doesn't change how you think about them. But I think of some some poets, or I really think of, you know, I'm thinking of like like Boris Vian, which is, which is novelist, but... You know, for the longest time, there was only one translator of, of his novels into English, and now there's so many. And that first translation was really terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I still liked it, but it's just, I think, opened him up to so many more Is people that the in English. Indigo book? Yeah. yeah. Um, Mood Indigo, yeah. Mood Indigo, yeah. Um, which actually, I think, the first translation was called Mood Indigo, but, but I don't think that's the translation yet. But then now there's so many translators. And it's completely, I think, changed how everyone looks at his work. And it's inter- so it's interesting when you have someone that's still at the point where there's really only one translator for them, or even if there's a couple, when there's not that many, it's hard sometimes to tell what's going on, especially if it's a language where you have no idea. I mean, it's nice yeah. when you have the text to reference a little bit, but if it's a language you have no idea what's going on, it doesn't help that much. All right, well, I want to read some more. Okay, yeah, yeah. The whale squeezes its sluggishness through a certain room. And then the little... I like that title. Yeah, I know, right? 
Um, <laughs> the white blubber, the pain. You wail, you voter. Your deed breaks holes in calm shapes. And then just because I'm going to do it terribly, but I just want to read the Swedish horribly. Det vita spaket smarten. Duval duvalscher. Din garni brighter hal illumina former. Sounds good. Yeah, there's that voter thing. That's weird. Yeah. All right, narwhale. Blade cuts water, fin cuts fat, but when claw scrapes ice, chapped edges are torn up. Whole whale. Whales want water, hollow in water, lightness in fatness, flight in blubber. Birth rubber. The rubber tumbler glides along the onions of time, the eons of echo time, one rams into walls of one's opposite. Blubber biter. Here hangs the bite waiting for blubber for many thousand years of slowness. Whale nut. Whale nut. Shell nut. Skull grinds the scalp from within. Mincemeat. Raise, plow, evacuation, cave, the sum of a whale in the consistency. Open the voter. Toast whale. Beached whale. Open whale, open space, unwhale of rubber rooms. Mom choice. Nurse whale, whale brood shell. Give hair milk. All whales are the same whale. That was the end of that section. Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, there's this really, like, conscious restriction of the types of imagery and vocabulary that come into it. Which is kind of interesting. I don't know. I don't know what to think of that exactly. Alright. One, two, a little bit more? Okay. I mean, we're... (laughs) Go ahead. Alright. How about just one longer poem? This comes from a section called The Hair Scalpel Through the Weight. Gray Hair Through Rock. Go hair parallel in flinches untouched step. Go imperceptibly as if cast by the stiff. In granite grains, fat in slow veins, years of patience and a way of being another time than human. Go granite untouched, go slow soul's strides, waiting like a heavier time, a different longing. Loosen the granite fat's lock. Read 11 vacuum time with hair hearing antenna will be scraped, coaxed loose and alone. A being which alone can ache itself to stone can accumulate materials around its weight. You know, I mean, I, 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 mean, I have no idea. Now I'm like stuck thinking about translation, but I will say whatever is going on with the translation, the one thing that, which I think is important, I think the translator is preserving some sound there. I yeah. mean, that's the, the, it still sounds. No, the sound is great. I think. Interesting it's, it's English. Actually hard it's nice. To read. Yeah, yeah, which is good. I'm, I like that. The alliteration. Uh, yeah, is yeah. Strong with this one. Well, it makes me wonder if the associations that are going on are more intuitive in the native language. Mm -hmm. Like, for me, the association between a whale and a nut (laughs) is, like, really 
bizarre. And I have no intellectual way of interpreting that. I have very little emotional way of responding to it. That's a difficult one. It feels very alien to me. And I think because what you were saying, like, the, the, the style is so narrow the style of expression it's like very constricted and we're using repetitive um images but they're not even really images they're like words Mm -hmm. these like repetitive word things yeah but i mean there's a lot of like well related things i mean i think that's related to the title too like the transfer fat and like there's a lot of like well, well, there are a lot of, like, objects in... Related things. Yeah, and yeah. I, like, in the native language, I just wonder if it, like, if these associations mean... Something deeper. Something, like, political, if they uh, mean something the environmental. That I, yeah, yeah I, I wouldn't so think so, but yeah, the voter thing is weird. I don't know. My intuition is that these poems are really politically charged in their native language, but we just have, don't... Most of the associations kind of make sense to me, except for, yeah. you're right, the whale nut is was the hardest one to make any sense out of, like, I don't know what. But, like, most of the other stuff kind of made sense. Oh, you did? Yeah. Like, yeah. But, yeah, that's a difficult... And the voter thing, I don't know what to do with that. So, but. here's just a blurb <laughs> from the back of the book. This woman, Kate Durbin. She says, Johannes Goransson's translations of Aseberg are themselves a kind of gorgeous, dripping fat transference, a carrying of the smelt across the hard lake, and she's pulling lines from the poem here, obviously, an extra, extra pouring of the running body, runny body. Uh-huh. Goransson's radical theories of translation as satanic addition and glorious mutation are at their absolute best in transfer fat. And Berg's meat which flows between the fingers is fat to bursting with the slick, slick permeations and violent political possibilities of language bodies gone haywire. Make that hair wire. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to tell what the hell that means, but... <laughs> but I, I think the political the, thing the is thrown in there, apparently. But this idea of... It feels very still lifey to me, mm-hmm. but... I don't know. Another thing calls it micro-architectures. Yeah. Mm. No bigger than a duct. But yeah, I mean, we don't know what we're missing, I guess, necessarily. Yeah, it's interesting. For sure. It's interesting what can be done with so little. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know, I think it's funny, both the poets I brought are very um, succinct. Well, in different, totally different ways. Yeah, but... I don't know, I don't know if I would call that succinct, necessarily. I don't... Really? I don't think I would call that succinct, but it's it's very... It's like using a limited palette. Okay. Right? Like, which I think are different things. I think it's almost the opposite of succinct, because... Well, I definitely feel like... It's taking a lot of words... To get yeah. to a small idea, but it's but it's doing it with a very limited palette, so it feels. But it um, to me, it feels almost like Polinsky is trying to say or discover the same thing over and over again. Yeah. Whereas Berg is using a small amount of words. Yeah, to get to, to different things. No, I think that's true. Yeah, yeah. But she's yeah, she's that. not doing the same thing over right? again at all. Even though it's with a limited palette, that's what I'm saying. It's like if she's using a limited palette. That's different. Mm-hmm. I don't think it is succinct. I think it's like actually 
because of using a limited palette, it's actually taking a lot of work to get to things. Sure. But that's okay. But I mean, but but it is getting there in an interesting way because of using a limited palette. Okay, I'll buy it. But I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> All right, one more, one more in translation, and this is Jose Lizama Lima. And Jose Lizama Lima is a Cuban poet and writer. Until very recently, the only thing you could read by him in English was his novel Paradiso, which is kind of a semi-autobiographical oh, novel. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's also very good in a, in a totally different way. But I really love his poetry, and it's it's almost baffling because... In Latin America, he's like like a titan of literature. Like, everyone knows who he is. He's like, I don't know what you would compare him to exactly, but it'd be like, you know, be like, like Whitman or something. But there were no translations of his poetry into English until very recently. In 2005, in the Poets for the Millennium series, they they published a, a selected poems of his, which is, which is very good, which is, I mean, if you don't know that series, you should check it out, uh, University of California Press. That, it's just a great series in general, but it's a really nice selected poems, translated by Ernesto Livon Grossman, uh, whom I, I don't really know t- too much about, but it seems like he's at Boston College... He's an assistant professor of Romance Languages. It looks like his other translations he's he's done, it looked like he translated Charles Olson into Spanish, which sounds like an extremely difficult task. (laughs) Um, But I've seen a couple of of translations of some of these same poems just on the internet, and and these these really hold up pretty well. Lizamali is interesting. Uh, He... Suffered from asthma a lot when he was young. I mean, I, I guess he suffered from his whole life, but because of that, he stayed indoors a lot. So he just read like this voluminous amount. He just read everything he could could get his hands on, and then he was going to try to study law. But then the Cuban Revolution happened, and the university closed, so that didn't happen. But he had been writing enough and started doing enough that he was named director of the Department of Literature and Publications of the National Council of Culture in 1960. And then later he was vice president of the Writers and Artists Guild in Cuba, too. But strangely, even though he served in those posts, he ju- he was, like, just a very apolitical. He never really supported the revolution totally. Uh, Is he still alive? No, he's, 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 he's dead now, but... And and he and he was also like really sad because his sisters left Cuba after the revolution happened, and so he was kind of upset about that. So he always kind of had this ambivalent kind of feeling, but he never would really come out one way or another about it. Uh, he's known as being a very obscure poet and a very difficult poet. Um, I think in one of the past episodes, uh, there's a quote from an interview with him that I I always really love about obscure poetry because he was known for being obscure and you know people would ask him about it and he said nothing um nothing obscure is so obscure as to terrify us nothing clear is so clear as to let us sleep at night 
was his response when an interviewer asked him about his poetry being obscure. Mm. Um, and he he also in one of his in one of his works. Uh, oh, watch! I think I said which one it is, but now I can't remember. Let's see. He said in his La Expression Americana, only difficulty is stimulating. To give you some sense of where this is going here. So, I don't Bring know. Bring it on, Joseph. This is to say, let's not leave it. <laughs> We're ready. So, this first bit, it's from a longer poem. From a longer poem, and this is from a section that's called Thoughts in Havana. Uh, it's too long to read the whole thing. I'm just going to read a little bit of it. Because I dwell in a whisper like a set of sails, a land where ice is a reminiscence, Fire cannot hoist a bird and burn it in a conversation calm in style. Though that style doesn't dictate to me a sob and a tenuous hop lets me live in bad humor, I will not recognize the useless movement of a mask floating where I cannot, where I cannot transport the stone cutter or the door latch to the museums where murders are papered, while the judges point out the squirrel that straightens its stockings with its tail. If a previous style shakes the tree, it decides the sob of two hairs and exclaims, Mi amo no esta en un quinciero. Any memory that is transported, received like a galantine from the obese ambassadors of old, will not make us live like the broken chair of the lonesome existence that notes the tide and sneezes in autumn and the size of a loud laugh broken by saying that its memories are remembered and its styles the fragments of a serpent that we want to solder together without worrying about the intensity of its eyes. If someone reminds us that our styles are already remembered, that through our nostrils no subtle air thinks forth, but rather that the aeolus of the sources elaborated by those who decided that being should dwell in man without any of us, dropping the saliva of a danceable decision, though we presume, like other men, that our nostrils expel a subtle air since they dream of humiliating us, repeating day and night with the rhythm of the tortoise that conceals time on its back. You didn't decide that being should dwell in man. Your god is the moon, watching like a banister the entrance of being into man. Since they want to humiliate us, we say to them, El jefe de la tribu de Skendio de la Esclenata. They have some show windows and wear some shoes. In those show windows, they alternate the mannequins with the stuffed ossifrage and everything that is passed through the forehead of the lonesome buffalo's boredom. If we don't look at the show window, they chant about our insufficient nakedness that isn't worth a figurine from Naples. If we go through it and don't break the glass, they don't stress amusingly that our boredom can break the fire, and they talk to us about the living model and the parable of the ossifrage, they who carry their mannequins to all the ports, and who push down into their trunks a screeching of stuffed vultures. They don't want to know that we climb up along the damp roots of the fern, where there are two men in front of a table, to the right the jug and the bread that has been caressed, and that though we may chew their style, Noescogiemos nuestros sabatos en una vitrina. The horse neighs when there's a shape that comes in between like a toy ox and keeps the river from hitting it on the side and kissing the spurs that were present from a rosy-cheeked adulteress from New York. 
The horse doesn't neigh at night. The crystals it exhales through its nose, a warm frost of paper. The digestion of the spurs, after going through its muscles, now glassy with the sweat of a frying pan, the toy ox and the horse, hear the violin. But the fruit doesn't fall, squashed on their backs that are rubbed with the syrup that is never tar. The horse slides over the moss, where there is a table exhibiting the spurs. But the perked up ear of the beast doesn't decipher. Wow, that's pretty magical. More animals. A lot of animals, animals. yeah. I'm stuck on the squirrel pulling up his stockings. That was pretty early on. With his tail. Yes. And horses. Now we just read that thing about horses. But there's a lot, too. I mean, I don't know. It's, I know it's hard to... He has a lot of mythological references in his poetry. Like, even in that, I, I kept, like, running across them. Um, that's something that he kind of does. He has this kind of idea of, like, pulling from some mythical past. I don't know. It's interesting. Why did you pick that one? Uh, because, I don't know, I wanted to find a long one that I could pull something out of. Because I really like his long poems the best. And s- some of the ones that I really like are, there's no way to exert something that I think makes any sense. Um, How long is that poem? That poem, well, I mean, the the section that's in here is about 20 pages long. But it says that it comes from a longer <laughs> section, oh, wow. too. So I don't know. Uh so was that like a book-length poem? It might have been a book-length poem. I'm not really sure. That's it says it comes from La Fieza. How does it look on the page? Uh, it's kind of a sort of traditional format. I mean, maybe, okay. yeah. I mean, the lines are a little longer. Because you read it without any notable pauses. You read it pretty fluidly, I guess. Yeah, that's but I think that's how I read. <laughs> yeah, but he does have, and I think, I'll just read one more, but I was going to read one. Well, maybe I'll read two more, because that's a short one I could read, too. But he does have a bunch that are prose poems, and I mm-hmm. thought I'd read one of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not too long. This is The Adhering Substance. If we left our arms in the ocean for two years... The toughness of our skin would be strengthened until it bordered on the greatest and noblest of animals, and on the monster that comes at the call of soup and bread. Crude latherings with the tegument of a horse. Chew a crab and breathe it out through our fingertips while playing the piano. Qualities that come and are repulsed with slowness, with displeasure and propriety, with celestial disgust with celestial scorn for frivolity and the errant wayward stamp, the submerged arm dignifies its cramps and its absent whiteness. It endures the sleep of the tides first, and the miserable jewels that drill through its flesh until they're blessed by a rosy doubling dew, perhaps to make with them a region of sands like eyes where the hollow pincer The shameful foot are transported with the natural swiftness of air thickened by hard and silver light. The submerged arm, as it is turned into a lodging for centerings and bubbles, intractable hump for resolute informers, 
finds itself circled by the insect like a flying point, while the snail, like an insistent point, frantic yet very, very slow, becomes encrusted on that portion, flesh and earth, pounded with masterly craft by the renewed numbers of the waves. Thus that submerged fragment, secured by the trial period of peace, is returned by echo and reflux as a superhuman, very, very white mystery. As the years go by, the submerged arm does not become a marine tree. On the contrary, it returns a larger statue with an improbable yet palpable body, a similar body for that submerged arm, very, very slow, as from life to sleep, as from sleep to life, very, very white. Wow. I like that idea. Yeah. The submerged arm. It is a trippy image. <laughs> it makes me want to try it. <laughs> well, I don't know what that means. You're going to have this picture of yourself, like, laying with your arms in ocean water and just people just coming to feed you for, like, two years. <laughs> is that silly? No. But, yeah. I mean, the, that's what the poem said. Yeah, the little... <laughs> and the little... All the creatures attaching to it. And, yeah. But it, but it doesn't become a part of the ocean. Mm-mm, it gets harder and more solidified. No, I mean, yeah. It's, it's really interesting as an image. Uh-huh. Yeah, you would think it would be eaten away, but it becomes... Bigger. Its own statue. I wonder. It'd really get eaten away, wouldn't it? Yeah. Well, no, but, well, I mean, it is eaten away in some sense. I mean, I think the flesh is gone, but but you have all these creatures attached to it, right? Mm-hmm. But it's still happens. not part of the ocean. It's like a, like a oil rig or something that becomes a space for marine animals to exist within and upon, but that marine... I mean, but that oil rig doesn't become a part of the ocean. This is the new extreme body modification craze. Take, <laughs> take hold. <laughs> you have to have a lot and of you, patience. You just have, like, aquariums in your house. You submerge a body. Okay. <laughs> Don't give anybody any ideas. I'm, I'm just going to read one really short one. Okay. One more short one. Yeah, short, right. Surprised. I can't. I mean it. And the horse begins bending the poker deck. Just a minute. The grapefruit's cleared of rain. I'm spelling. What question fits? What elbow intermingles? The thoroughfare has soaked himself with drawing. These are witnesses, oaths, platitudes. An index finger crooked as a nose. Pointless cinders rounding off. A cardboard repost. Certain conceits, a ribcage against the light, a water spout battening the lantern as it doles out Christmas cards. I scratch, I move on, I plunge. Not a single navigator left. I touch, I turn the other cheek. Now a patter on the blinds, a crisscross of fish between legs spread open, scissors. A word of advice. 
The balding poker deck never gave birth. The dribbled window chews the rosebud, its blinking in focus, the shattered glass roaming, then the jerking, the capsized shark. Poltroonishly, boots are scraped over stubble, trudging back along the sidewalk at noon. The salamander in a fever keeps leaping off of the peacoat. I can't. I'm going to bed. I'll wake up with my amulet missing. As they spin a carpet, spiders tangle their tiny threads. Mr. Air assembles and decapitates. I like him better than your Will Alexander. Well, they're different. Yeah, but there's similarities. Because the things you like, the animals and the words and the sounds and the images. But I feel like those images I can follow better. Well, but I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. <laughs> I do. I think it's a good thing. Well, I like both of them. Also, but, it's, uh, that poem in particular reminds me of Eliot. Well, in some ways. But, yeah, in some ways. A proofrock, right? Like some sort of... Well, that one's a very speaker-oriented poem. Mm-hmm. And then you've got kind of pulling things... Like pulling in like the poker deck and Christmas cards. You've got like this... Very mundane world being pulled into the mm-hmm. to the natural world kind of thing, mm-hmm. which is something Elliot does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, and our and our last poet. Were you done? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So about five years ago, I guess I stole this book from my friend <laughs> Daniel Levon Thomas. And it is a journal called Quiddity International Literary Journal and Public Radio Program. This is from volume two, number one. And um, so I stole the book and then I really liked this particular poem in the journal by a man named Brian Swan who I had never um, encountered before. And, okay, so I'm bringing in this poem by Brian Swan because after reading the poem, uh, well, I was in a specific period of life, I guess. I don't know. I, uh, I just gone through a bad breakup and I was living in my house alone, and I was grieving. And so I wrote this poem on my kitchen walls and part of it on my bedroom wall. And, yeah, so that was, that was like five and a half years ago. So I have been living within this poem <laughs> for five and a half years. Mm-hmm. And I, I love this poem. This poem just made a very profound impact on me um and it still does like i will just be sitting in the kitchen reading the poem and i'll think about it in a different way or notice something different about it and um the the very beginning section of the poem i have written on our bedroom wall and so indigo and i will wake up and as she's grown older she'll ask me you know in the morning what is that 
what is that writing on the wall? What is that say, Mama? What is that? Why did you write it on the wall? And so, so I'll read that to her and then we'll talk about it. Um, so yeah, I guess I just have like a really particular relationship with this poem because I've never done anything like that before. Yeah. And I, I wrote it on the wall, not in the size of like 12 point type. <laughs> I wrote it sort of largely. <laughs> it takes up um, a couple walls, mm-hmm. actually. So anyway, now I'll read the poem. It's called uh, Dreaming of History, History Dreams Us. A young girl in a shawl sits on the sidewalk selling lizards. Dust is a kind of clarity in which women stand talking. I am on a bench reading the Poesia Indígena Homero Arides gave me years ago where beings and things diffuse, beauty and blood fuse, and the pasts now. Over my head, ripening fruits are light taken in and shaped to fit their own shadows. Beside me, trance-like flowers, yellow, red, and white, mottled flowers like the thighs of the Divine Mother who is painted with chalk, and fed deer hearts, for whom men dance in feathers, then turn to deer, which go to live on the high barren plain, whose music is echoic forever, and which I fancy. I can still hear over the hubbub, the postcards and avocados, above the cathedral that is a a temple ransacked, And I think of how we invent ourselves and spread them out, flayed thin, the skins we live in to dream, making of dream a rhythm beaten out of sun. So it is no dream, but true as beauty, the bloody flower of the sun itself. Um, I think one of the things that appeals to me about this poem. And when I when I looked up this author, Brian Swan, and found other poems of his, I realized that this is kind of his style. This is almost his signature style to, um, to sort of have these images blend into one another until this momentum is accrued in the poem. And like it's almost like he starts in an actual place and then it turns into a dream somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. It like becomes very surreal um, in the middle. Um, so it, I feel like there's a kind of transportation that takes place. And so, okay. A young girl in a shawl sits on the sidewalk selling lizards. Dust in a, is a kind of clarity in which women stand, stand talking. That is in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. That is the quote we wake up to. And I think that that, um, that those lines were especially important to me because um, there's a kind of loneliness or a little bit of a 
destitute, like, huh, what's going on there? Right, what is selling lizards? Well, I just think it's I mean, it's, it's like, a little game. No, I just I think, think, yeah, like, kids do that stuff, right? Yeah. yeah like, you're I catching lizards, so you're it's like, all right. Weird lizards yeah, and then the line, dust is a kind of clarity in which women stand talking. So it's almost like there's this this absence of uh, material bounty or any kind of um, larger purpose or connectedness, but there's, I don't know, I guess... Um, Dust is a kind of clarity in which women stand talking. I don't know. I guess there's a there that that was comforting to me somehow. Um, and so then, for a while, the section that was I can still hear over the hubbub the postcards and avocados above the cathedral that is a temple ransacked. That was. On the wall above the kitchen sink. I love that though. <laughs> and that was that was one of my favorite sections of the poem. And I loved the sounds in it. I mean, it's describing a marketplace, but he never says marketplace. He just describes the sounds and the images, and like we have a sense of place very distinctly. And um, it it like. I, it's he's like describing this city without a time almost. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems like almost a car- archaic city, but it's unclear whether or not it's still in existence somewhere, or whether or not it's a part of well, the books that he's. Yeah, writing. I mean, I don't know, but it almost feels like it's like you're visiting somewhere, like maybe mm-hmm. you're in you're in Greece or somewhere. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense, like the postcards, or maybe maybe more like. Avocados don't seem like Greece. It seems like maybe you're in Turkey or something, like where you're, where, where. But the ruins are there, so you're thinking of the ruins of the temple that's in America. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. It feels more like I don't know something with it. Maybe it could be though. Temple ruins. I don't care about the place. Feels very classical to me. But yeah, hearing above the sounds of avocados, and then Mm -hmm. you get this idea that the vegetables are alive and talking to each other. Yeah, right, like that. And that line that starts with the word hubbub. Hubbub, right. Like, what the fuck? that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a great word. Wow, that's doing some work right there, that word. (laughs) So then Chris Sullivan decided that we needed some shelves in the kitchen. So he made us a very beautiful shelving unit for plates and glasses. He painted it red and he delivered it to me and he determined that it needed to go where the poem was. So, we put that shelving unit there and covered the poem, which was fine because then I wrote a different section of the poem on a different place in the kitchen (laughs) using charcoal um, so I can rub it off when I want to. But, uh, okay, so then... So then I had the middle section, uh, which is still on the wall now, and it, and um, and that section ends with um, the men who are dancing in feathers, turning into deer when they're da- dancing for um, for the women that they have in their minds. 
um, and they turn into deer, which go on to live on the high barren plain, whose music is echoic forever, and which I fancy, which could be the end of the poem. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not. The poem goes on. Mm-hmm. But that's where the ending section stops on the kitchen wall at this point. So, um, I wanted to read a little bit about who Brian Swan yeah, is. Yeah, who is this Because I actually just looked him up today. I've just been living inside of this poem that he wrote for five and years, and not and ever knowing who he was. his name is as if the swan in the swan's way. Oh. Double N. Double N. <laughs> Poet, critic, and translator Brian Swan earned a BA and an MA from Queens College, Cambridge, and a PhD from Princeton University. His collections of poetry include Autumn Road, in 2005, which won the Ohio State University Press the Journal Award in Poetry, Snow House, winner of the Lena Miles Weaver Todd Poetry Prize, and In Late Light. He also writes fiction and children's books and scholarly works. He is also the poetry editor of the environmental web magazine On Earth and has edited numerous volumes of Native American literature, including coming to light contemporary translations of the Native literatures of the North America, Wearing the Morning Star, Native American song poems, and Algonquin spirit, contemporary translations of the Algonquin literatures of North America. Swan teaches at Cooper Union in New York City, and I think I saw somewhere that he was born in 1940, which means he's like five years older than my dad. He's been around a long time. He's done a ton of stuff. <laughs> it sounds I had very no familiar. idea. Yeah. I had never heard of him. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I have, but... Not that he's not but well-known and well-published, uh, uh, but I had never experienced him before. And he's been published a nu- published a number of times where's the in... Poem? Uh, it's in Quiddity. Oh, I have this book. You Song have of the Sky book. by Brian Excellent. Swan. Excellent. It's a it's um a bunch of creation of native creation myths. I just bought well, it recently because I teach creation myths. When you're done with it, I'd like to borrow it. Um, I'm, I'll probably now that I know he has so many poetry collections, I'll probably order some of his collections. But um, I found um. I found some other poems uh, online yeah. from Poetry Magazine. The other, yeah, so the other one of him I'm going to read is Egg. So the epigraph is, We are in the position of defining myth by the shape of its absence. Sean Kane, Wisdom of the Myth Tellers. The bluebird's cold, mistimed egg fetched up from the one-legged box after the pair had left for points south and unknown, never as it turned out to return. I re-nested in the half-geode by the windowsill where it gleamed and, months becoming years, seemed about to last forever, grow more consistent with itself, holding its pure blue firmament up over what by now was nothing, till one January day 
snow melting to a fast flood. I blew it softly onto my palm so I could hold its cerulean up against new sky, home against home, where it lay weightless and delicate as the Christmas ornament we'd just put away. But when I went to roll it gently back onto its bed and leave it there, I saw a thread, a crack, another, watched it sink in slowly on itself, shard on shard, collapsing from my touch and breath, relaxing into the shape of its absence. Um, yeah, there is a myth. The black egg that exists oh. at the beginning of the universe. It's a, oh. it's a Native American creation myth of how the universe started. Okay. And the cracks in that become, I'm not going to remember perfectly, something else. And then that something else actually messes up completely and then they start again. But at the very beginning, it's this egg cracking open. Oh, wow. That's cool. That's pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, I like those. Yeah, I thought it was interesting how much he did with that one little egg image, and then he just kind of took off with it. Okay, wait. I was going to read one more by him. Bandusian Spring. One baleful dog star night when no one slept and shepherds played bad-tempered tunes and villagers in hill-held licenza flung stones at baying curs and curses at insomniac neighbors, here we came, thoughts hobbled, expressions hunchback. You sacrificed a phrase, and I a sentence, and we watched blood slowly fan out like a winnowing, soak into earth raised in hard welts and scars. The spring flowed over green rock as a bull covers cows, showing it accepted our offering, not a firstling of the herd, but firstling of the heart, poison held nearest, that is pain to part with. A wild pig with hot eyes came unwittingly upon us, sitting there like two uprooted statues, silent, bare, and white. He drank, and the whole tribe came to mar the clear stream. Hmm. Um, I, his images are super vibrant and... I really like the sound in his poems. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hubbub, hobbled, hunchback. Mm-hmm. Hunchback. The end I'm of, in, the man. End of that is hunchback, yeah. Expressions, hunchback. Um, and then the wild pig with hot eyes at the end. Um, his, yeah, I feel like through the sound and fluidity of the images... His poems become very musical mm-hmm. to yeah. me, yeah. Um, and they have like this momentum um, that I really like. So anyway, I'm looking forward to exploring more Brian Swan. Yeah, and Brian Swan has no idea that his poem is on some crazy lady's kitchen wall in New Orleans. Maybe he'll listen to this and then he'll know. Perhaps. It's funny because all of my hair, you know, I do my haircuts in the kitchen 
because I am an unlicensed barber who performs haircuts in my kitchen. <laughs> and um, and the hair chair is positioned facing facing yeah. the poetry wall mm-hmm. in the kitchen. And so Well, yeah. <laughs> Brian Swan is getting some major readership <laughs> from my kitchen and he has no idea. We'll have to find him on Facebook and tag him. Well, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, so that was, you know, uh, those were some interesting poets. If you're listening to this, you know, I think you should go buy at least one of these books of one of these people that we talked about today. Maybe more than one. Or steal it from a friend. Yeah. (laughs) That's what I do. Check, check. Check some of this out, you know, or, or or you can just go online and read it. But you know, it's better if you have the real book. It really is. And thank you, Laura and Rana, for joining me today. Thank you, Joseph, for, for doing me. this wonderful podcast. And this has been the No Good Poetry Podcast. Mm-hmm.